Father, I just thank you that, Lord, you have an answer to the deepest longings of the human soul. And Lord, I just pray tonight that the questions that may arise in our minds or maybe the doubts that we've uh, ha had to address or maybe we're addressing right now or maybe the arguments and uh, the skepticism that comes regarding this amazing message that we are proclaiming. Father, I pray tonight as we look into your word that your presence, your spirit will open our hearts, that we will hear your voice speaking to us, that you will dispel the darkness, the fears, the doubt, the skepticism that's in our soul, Lord. I pray that you will strengthen us and make us aware, Lord, that what you are sharing with us is actually a, a message that is so life-changing, so filled with hope, so filled with joy and peace, Lord, that we will experience your full purposes for our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I'm gonna have you turn uh, to the Gospel of Mark. And we're in chapter 15 and beginning in verse 40. And you may not know this, but this is the last message from the Gospel of Mark. You know, we've been at this book for a little while now. Yeah, I've preached other sermons. I've had other people speak. I think we've been at it for a year and a half. This is, this is the climax of the book of Mark, okay? So we're going to turn there. C.S. Lewis, very well-known author, said, The earliest converts were converted by a single historical fact. I like this. In other words, you know, the thing that helped people respond to the message of the gospel was the fact that the proclamation was that Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. That's a great thing. That it's not just based on, you know, some philosophical theory. It's based on a historical reality. And then he goes on to say, and a single historical doctrine which is the doctrine of redemption. Last week I spoke on the cross, the sufferings of Jesus. I brought out the idea it was not so much the emphasis on the physical sufferings of Christ, but rather the alienation and the mockery and the shame that he experienced because as I pointed out, many people were crucified under the Romans and yet Jesus suffered humiliation and actually he despised the shames in order to bear upon his body the sin of the entire world. And I talked a lot about how God's judgment fell on Jesus. And out of that, Jesus made a way for us to have a right relationship to God, which is really powerful. And so Lewis is bringing this out. And he says that all of these ideas, the historical reality of the resurrection, the great doctrine of the redemption, is all based on the, on the recognition that, you know, that there are some absolute moral laws in this world. You know, that just like there's scientific and physical laws, there are spiritual and moral laws, and when we violate these laws, we suffer the consequence of them. And so many people don't understand that. They just think, well, I'll just do what I want. I'm free to do my thing. And yet so often, what those freedoms lead to is actually bondage and alienation and misunderstanding, broken relationships, you know, alienation from God and with one another. And, and so we, what I'm gonna focus on this evening is this message of the early church. It was this declaration of the fact that Jesus Christ not only had died and was buried, but that he rose again. Now, in spite of that message, you know, there were people that were mocking it. There were people that were skeptics, just like there are today. But there were other people who responded to it, and their lives were transformed as a result. Let me just point out in the book of Acts, which is the, the book of the early church history, Peter, 
one of the first preachers of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. This is like 50 days after Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. Now he's, he's standing in the city where it actually happened. Jesus was crucified just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Now Peter's standing up, you know, where thousands of Jews had gathered for a festival and Peter's standing up to preach. The Spirit of God had fallen on them. There was a supernatural manifestation and Peter's preaching and here's what he says. And I'm gonna just give the summary of his sermon in Acts chapter two and verse 22. He said, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Now, everybody there knew of Jesus. They knew of the miracles. They had, you know, seen miracles. They had heard of the miracles. They'd heard of people who were, you know, born blind who could now see. People who were lame could now walk. People who could not hear could now hear. People who were tormented by evil spirits were set free. And ultimately, just a week before Jesus was crucified, he came to a small village near Jerusalem, and a man who had been dead for four days by the name of Lazarus had been raised back to life. How many know when you got dead people coming back to life, you got people's attention? You know that? And so you know, everybody, the, the, the whole city was stirred about Jesus, and yet he was crucified. And said, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. He's, he's basically saying, you have this understanding. You, you've experienced this. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Now, how many think it takes a little bit of courage to confront the people that were responsible for killing Jesus? How many think it takes a little courage? You know, you're standing here, speaking to a crowd of people. and Some of them were actually responsible for Christ's death. And he's confronting them. He's actually addressing the issues of their soul. I, I think that takes, number one, a little courage, you know. And also, sometimes when we address things in people's lives, God can begin to work in their lives. You know, we're afraid to address things. Somebody know that's true. We never address stuff. We would rather not deal with this stuff. And then it says, but God raised him from the dead. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if you're telling people that Jesus is alive and his tomb is just outside the city walls, all people have to do is pack the body back in and go, Peter, you're totally misunderstood. You're just totally missing it, man. This guy is dead. But you see, there was no body to produce because Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. It says, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Isn't that beautiful? So Peter's preaching this sermon to the very people who had crucified Jesus, to the very people who could go out and take a look at an empty tomb, you know, and there was all kinds of people discussing this stuff. This was like, you know, major headlines of the day, you know what I'm saying? Everybody was talking about it, and Peter's now explaining to them what had happened. Now, a little later on, a couple decades later, the Apostle Paul is now preaching in a city in modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor at that time. He was in a city, and he's preaching in a synagogue, which is the Jewish kind of church gathering place. And he's preaching. He says, brothers, children of Abraham, which is, you know, an expression for the Jewish people, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. In other words, they didn't, they're not talking about physically recognize him. They just said they didn't understand who he was. 
I mean, if you knew that this was God in the flesh, you certainly wouldn't have killed him. If you knew this was the Messiah that God had promised, you certainly wouldn't have crucified him. He said, they didn't recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfill the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. What words? The words of the suffering servant. The word in Isaiah 53, you know, that you know, someone would have to suffer and be an atoning sacrifice for people. And other promises from the Old Testament. It says, yet in condemning him, they fulfill those words. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Last week I preached on the fact that Pilate, or two weeks ago, he wanted to let Jesus go, and yet he ends up condemning an innocent man to free a guilty man. Isn't that amazing? And isn't that kind of what the whole story is, that God comes and he dies in our place, and actually he's the substitute. You and I are the guilty ones that he sets free. He who is innocent takes on our guilt. What an amazing message of grace that God has given to us. And then it says, and when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I want you to notice that statement. It's very powerful. You know what? Paul was not only talking about Jesus being crucified, but he was also talking about the fact that his body was put inside of a tomb. So there's, a, there's an understanding that what's important here is not only that Jesus died, but that he was buried and that he rose again. But he goes on to say, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And these are now his witnesses to our people. In other words, hey, it wasn't just an empty tomb. Jesus came back to life and appeared to people and began to converse with people. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? You know, here's a person that was dead and now is alive and relating to people. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Listen, we just read that. I made you read Psalm 16 on purpose because when we got to verse 10, it stated this. And then what Paul is gonna argue, and this is gonna make total sense to us, he basically said, for when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. And he was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. So what is he saying? He's saying David, the author of Psalm 16, is not the one who's experienced this experience. When David died, his body decomposed, you know, but the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. In other words, this psalm is actually a prophetic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. It's, it's moving to talk about what happened with Jesus. Jesus, who died, his body did not deteriorate because he wasn't in the tomb long enough. He was raised on the third day. What a powerful thing. Now, while Paul was now later preaching or teaching in Athens, some of the intellectuals of that community rejected what he said. How many know, uh, if you study a little of the chronology of time, you know, in the fifth century, 500 years before the birth of Christ, you had these Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and, and these kind of individuals, but you know what? Here they were, all of these people with these great philosophical systems, and yet, when they heard the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, it did not jive with their minds. Many of them couldn't relate to it. And Paul says this in Acts 17, 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Folks, we always are gonna have people who are scoffers, people who are gonna mock this message. 
It happened in the first century. It's been happening in every century since. It's happening in the 21st century. But it says, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. In other words, there were people who were more open-minded, said, hey, I want to hear more about this and find out what's going on because this is certainly good news. And so it should not surprise us today that there are mockers and scoffers. Now, you know, this week I went on the web and I was looking up skeptics on the resurrection and I found a, a web page for a guy by the name of Richard Carrier. Richard Carrier is a PhD in, in history and he was asked to speak because he's a, a skeptic. He was asked to speak at Yale. You know, I just love these universities. But th- he was invited by the, the skeptics and what was it, the, um, uh, the humanists and the secularists, and they, they wanted him to argue against Christianity. So he comes up there and he's making his presentation. Now, one of the things that I like about having a little bit of education is that it, it leastens the intimidation factor. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Because, you know, so often when we don't have a good education, we think, well, these guys are smart, they ought to know better, right? They're smarter than I am, right? Because they have a PhD. Can I tell you, I've been, in, I've been in an educational facility most of my life, and I've been around a lot of people who have doctorate degrees, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily coherent in their thinking. I'll just point that out, you know. I jokingly say some people are so smart they're stupid. Have you ever met people like that? You know, I just go, I can't believe it. You know, that's not even jiving. Now, let me just quote from him, because in fairness, you need to hear where they're coming from. So he makes this argument, and he says, which brings us to the second point. It seems distinctly possible, if not definite, that the original Christians did not, in fact, believe in a physical resurrection. Excuse me, Richard, how do you know this is the definitive word? You know, because if you usually take their arguments, which is something like, well, you have to prove it. Well, let me ask Richard Carrier, did you meet the original disciples? Do you know for sure that that's what they believe? Because he's now saying it's a definite thing. I'm going, excuse me, how can you make that statement? This is what I mean by people using their educational background like PhDs and making statements like everybody should believe this. And that is annoying to me because, you know what, you can't support this statement, Richard. I'm sorry. As a matter of fact, he goes, did not, in fact, believe in, quote, unquote, a physical resurrection. So now he's going to redefine what happened. He meaning a resurrection of the corpse, but that Jesus was taken up to heaven and given a new body, a more perfect spiritual body. So now it's a spiritual resurrection. Hang on to that because this is important. And then the risen Jesus was seen in visions and dreams just like the vision Stephen had before he dies and when Paul, which Paul has on the road to Damascus. So what he's basically saying is once Jesus died, it was a spiritual body and everybody that saw Jesus was just seeing a spiritual body. And so he's dismissing the idea that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Now, the scriptures do not support Richard Carrier's premise. Not one iota. Because already I've read from you from the Old Testament that the Bible says his body would not decay. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, who, you know, he makes an argument. I, I love this, and he's correct in this. He says Paul's letters were written before the Gospels, which is true. Many of them were. So he's basically saying, you know, Paul's going to be the, you know, the word on what's happening with Jesus and the resurrected body. But as we're going to see, Paul is not going to support Richard Carrier's premise. He goes on to say, but whatever their cause, if this is how Christianity actually started, it means that the resurrection story told in the Gospels of a Jesus risen in the flesh does not represent what the original disciples believed, but was made up generations later. Now, he's making an assumption that the original disciples didn't believe this. That's Richard Carrier's assumption, you know? So even if they did die for their beliefs, even if they did die for their beliefs, 
He's just saying, well, the church has made that up. No, those guys did die for their beliefs. They did not die for the belief that Jesus was physically resurrected from the grave. Now, I'm going to tell you this. The only way, and we're going to see this in a minute, the only way Richard Carrier can make this argument is that he has to discredit the actual text of Scripture. It's the only way he can make this argument, which he tries to do. And how, so I'm saying all of this tonight to say this. You and I, as Christians, so often we are attacked, we are diminished, we're put down, we're almost seen as anti-intellectual. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's, today you're presented as if you have to have no head on your shoulders to be a Christian. You've got to be a dummy to actually believe this stuff. I mean, that's the way it's presented. Come on now. Isn't that true? But I want to just assure some of you people out here that some of the smartest people living on the planet are Christians. And they're actually not anti-intellectual. They're extremely brilliant people. And they actually, the story of Jesus is so coherent, it all fits together. And you're going to see this. You're going to be shocked as we look at the scriptures, how as we examine this text from the book of Mark, we're going to see how the whole story comes together. And that the only way you cannot believe in the story is if you actually don't believe the Bible. And that's what we're skeptics are going today. You know, they're going, oh, you can't believe the Bible, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Paul, who's, you know, as he said, uh, is basically, you know, we're going to see in a few minutes, he's actually supporting the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. So I'm raising all of this to say this, that I think, you know, some people struggle with doubt. I think there's genuine Christians who struggle with doubt. Tonight I'm hoping that some of your doubts will be dismissed. I'm also hoping tonight that you're going to gain some information so that when skeptics and mockers mock the message of Christianity, you're going to have a little information to be able to say, hey, wait a minute. That's not exactly the way it goes down. You just can't say that stuff. See, if I was talking to Richard Carey, I'd say, hey, stop here a minute. You cannot make those statements. You don't know what those guys are saying. You weren't there. So don't make those definitive statements. Those are not good arguments, okay? So, now, I think this is important. So how do we respond to the skeptics or the critics and maybe even our own personal doubts? Because if... You know, Jesus did not rise bodily from the dead, which is the essence and foundation of the Christian faith, then we have some real problems. As a matter of fact, Paul's going to argue that point, the Apostle Paul. Because if their arguments are true, then Christianity is the greatest deception ever propagated against humanity. If Jesus Christ did not bodily rise from the dead, then this is all a, a fraud. That's true. And you know, in the 19th century, this is really amazing to me, there was a, there was a, a lawyer... He was a, a law professor, and he wrote a, a three-volume presentation in the mid-1800s. And it was a, a, pre, a, a, a presentation to the American Law Society to literally speak about how to determine true evidences in order to be an effective attorney of law, okay? And this guy was quite brilliant. He wrote these three volumes, and he's teaching law, and he was also a skeptic and a mocker of Christianity, and he would continue to mock and all the rest of it in his classes. And finally, some of his law students who were Christians finally said, listen, you've written this brilliant work on evidences. Why don't you take your brilliant evidences and apply it to the scriptures, you know, to disprove them? And so he took them up on the challenge. And you know what happened? He became a Christian. That's what happened. And then, now because he's a Christian and he realizes that the, you know, the arguments in the New Testament are so strong, he decides that he's going to actually challenge his professional colleagues with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and he wrote a book on the resurrection of Jesus and the evidences for that. 
And so Simon Greenleaf, that's his name, who had started out to disprove Christianity, ends up becoming a Christian. Then he says this, and I love this, because in his preface, this is not the, his original edition, but a later revision with some additions, but with, with some people that are writing more modernizing the terminology. You know, he makes this preface, and he's opening his remarks to embrace the law profession, to invite them to, in, to actually look at the claims of Christianity. So here's his opening remarks in the preface, basically. He says... Um, The religion of Jesus Christ aims at nothing less than the utter overthrow of all other systems of religion in the world. How many know that's true? Christianity says, we're it, folks. This is the only way to God, okay? And so he's basically saying to them, listen, you know, back in the day when lawyers were more respected, he said, people looked to us to be able to give the evidence of what was true and what was false, And he says, it's up to us to determine if Christianity is true or false because take a look, these guys are literally propagating an idea that everybody else is wrong. So we better take a look at this. He says, denouncing them as inadequate to the wants of man, false in their foundations and dangerous in their tendencies. In other words, Christianity is slamming all these other religions, which is true if you think about it. It says, it not only solicits the grave attention of all to whom its doctrines are presented, but it demands their cordial beliefs as a matter of vital concernment. In other words, what he's saying here, fancy way of saying that basically the Bible is challenging people to believe its message and that you can't just ignore these, these, these claims that the Bible is making. These are no ordinary claims, and it seems hardly possible for a rational being, somebody that's thinking, to regard them with a subdued interest, much less to treat them with indifference or contempt. And by the way, that paragraph, just alone, that statement, is exactly what's happening in our culture today. People are acting today, you know, as if, you no, know, they have no interest in Christianity. How many kind of notice a lot of people have no interest in Christianity and they're treating it with indifference and contempt, right? They're just going, yeah, you Christians. You know, they're just dismissing all of this stuff. But hang in there. Listen to what he says next. It's powerful. If not true, if Christianity is not true, these claims are not true, they are little else than the pretensions of a bull in imposture which not, which not satisfied with already having enslaved millions of the human race In other words, he's saying, look, these Christians, you know, they've already brainwashed a whole bunch of people, right? They're already affecting their thinking in the world, see? And they're now seeking to continue its encroachment upon human liberty until all nations will be subjugated under its iron rule. Wow. And by the way, if you don't think this is true, I'm just reading Revelation right now, the last book. Do you know that every nation is going to come under the authority of Christ? As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ died and rose again, he literally destroyed the works of darkness. He destroyed man's greatest foe, which is death itself. And now what's happening in the spiritual arena is that Jesus Christ is the victor. All of the demonic forces have been defeated on the cross. What a powerful thing. And what's happening is we're still not fully experiencing it on earth, but we are beginning to see the beginnings of that defeat of the powers of darkness. And it shall come to pass. Everything that's happened in the heavenly realms will eventually transpire in the, in the earthly realms. You say, why is that, Pastor? Because what's happening in the spiritual realm is eternal. What's happening in the physical realm is temporal. How many know everything you see is temporary? Everything you see is temporary. The only things that are eternal are that which you do not see. Powerful. He goes on to say here, hey, it's important we deal with these guys because, you know, they're affecting the entire world. And then he says this, but if they are well-founded, the arguments in the scripture, if the doctrines are true, if they're well-founded and just, they can be no less than the high requirements of heaven. 
addressed by the voice of God to reason and understanding of man concerning things deeply affecting his relations to his sovereign, which is to God himself, and essential to the formation of his character, and of course to his destiny, both for this life and the life to come. What is he basically saying? He's saying if Christianity's message is true, boy, people better pay attention, because you know what's gonna happen? Everything it says is gonna happen. And basically, Christianity is designed to shape our lives. And some of us who've been Christians for a long time know exactly what I'm talking about. It has shaped our lives. It shapes your thinking. It shapes the way you act. It shapes the way you behave. It shapes the way you relate to other people. It shapes your purposes in life. It begins to affect your character. All of a sudden, you know, you, know, it, you, you start to change. You know, I have, I have discovered I am not the person I was when I first became a Christian. You know, I am a different person. As a matter of fact, if you'd have met me before I'm a Christian, you'd have gone, it's not even the same person. You wouldn't even recognize that person. First of all, that person's dead. You know, it died. And a new being came into being. What do you mean, Pastor? If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So God began a new work in my soul and began to change my thinking, my character, my goals, my desires, my passions, my character. God was working on all these things just like God is doing that in your life if you're a child of God. What a powerful thing. Wow, I think this is a powerful message. But if the message of the resurrection is true, folks, then it is the most important message of our world and they need to hear it and they need to embrace it. And that's why skeptics come against the message of the resurrection because that's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And as a matter of fact, who started them on that journey but Jesus himself? Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter eight and verse 31. He began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief elders, uh, by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You know what Jesus said? Listen, this is what's gonna happen to me. I'm gonna die and three days afterwards I'm gonna come to life again. Now how many know in this room, you guys cannot call the fact that someone's going to kill you and you're going to come back to life in three days. How many know you can't pull that? It's not going to work. But Jesus was able to do that because he knew who he was. And basically what Jesus was saying is the sign of de determining who I am. I am God in the flesh. The sign to tell you that is the fact that I'm going to conquer death. I'm going to come back to life. And you know, his enemies actually heard what he said. We're going to find out the disciples having a harder time with that message. They didn't quite believe that. Actually, his enemies were more concerned about the fact that he had said that. And so they went to Pilate in the Gospel of Matthew and said, hey, listen, you know, this deceiver, in their mind, Jesus was a, was a false prophet. This deceiver is basically saying he's coming back to life. Can we please put guards around the tomb so nobody steals his body? Because if his body's gone, we're going to have some big time problems. So they posted a guard and set a seal on his tomb. I love that. So his enemies were concerned about this. Now the apostle Paul who met the resurrected Jesus, you know, 20 years after he was crucified and raised from the dead... He's now writing to the church at Corinth and he's explaining the important fundamental understanding of the resurrection of the, of the dead as being essential to Christianity. This is what he writes. Now, brothers or sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Okay, this is the, this is the nature of the gospel, the good news about God. This is it. This gospel, by this gospel, you are saved. Saved from what? Saved from my sin. Safe from death, safe from my addiction, safe from, you know, the things that are going on in my life that are destroying me. It says, 
If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I receive, I pass on to you as a first importance. This is the most primary thing. This is the essence of Christianity. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. How many think that's interesting? That one of the most important elements of the gospel is that Jesus Christ was buried. I almost named the sermon, and he was buried. You know, some of us go, is that important? Yeah, it is, because there's people out there saying, well, Jesus never died. You know what happened? That Jesus was crucified on the cross. They took him down, you know, and then when they laid him on that coal slab of a rock, he revitalized. Really? There are people out there teaching that. It's called a swoon theory. I just want you to know, if the Romans are crucifying you and they tell you that you're dead, believe me, these guys kill you. You're dead. And we're going to find out the scriptures support the fact that Jesus was buried. And then it says here, uh, not only was buried, but it says, uh, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In other words, this is what God told at the beginning. He actually predicted this. Jesus jumped on that message and it actually happened. And then he appeared to Peter. Now, it's one thing to say you're coming back from the dead. It's another thing, you know, to have an empty tomb. But it's a whole new thing when you start showing up meeting with people. And he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And some people say, well, no, there's another theory. These guys were such in a state of grief, they wanted to believe he was still alive. So they began to hallucinate that Jesus was still alive. But then Paul says this. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. You know, it's really hard for 500 people to have the same hallucination. That's not, you know, because they say it's mass, you know, uh, yeah, mass hysteria or, you know, you just can't, you know, fooling one or two people is one thing. Fooling 500 people at the same moment is a very difficult trick to do, you know, most of whom he says are still living. I like that. He says, hey, you want to check this out? I can give you the names of people who are walking around that actually have seen Jesus who came back from the dead. Though there are some who have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one who is abnormally born. That doesn't mean he had a weird birth. It just means that he was, you know, God reached Paul in an unusual way. We cannot expect our conversion experience to be like the apostle Paul's. That was an unusual experience. And he tells about that. And then Paul goes on to say the resurrection is of such importance that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christianity is a fraud. And he says it this way in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. In other words, there's no value to what's going on here. You know, the whole crux of this whole message is that Jesus Christ came back from the dead. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Why did he say that? Because the early church was suffering great persecution. They were martyred, you know, and he said, man, we should be pitied if, you know, we're believing this deception. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Wow. You know what's so interesting? I don't know if this ever happens to you. You know, you hear about somebody passing away and they say, well, they're in a better place. How many have ever heard that? Anybody say that? Anybody heard that? Yes. I'm going, why in the world can you say that? Do you know that Christianity has so influenced our culture? 
in North America here that we actually have an undergirth of Christianity so we actually believe that people can experience eternal life because of what Christ has done and that there's a heaven to gain and a hell to, to, to avoid. That's all a message of Christianity. Do you know early Judaism didn't even believe in the resurrection? And in the time of Jesus, you had this argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some said that, no, there was a resurrection, and others said there was no resurrection. I don't even know if you knew that, but that they were struggling with this concept. And that it was actually Christianity that taught that people were resurrected from the dead. And that people that are walking around today are saying, you know, they're in a better place. I'm going, how, do you, how can you say that? You know, that's a, such a stupid statement when you think about it. What are you basing that, what are you basing that hope upon? Well, there's a, there's a heaven. I said, yeah, well, the Bible teaches that. Are you basing it on the Bible then? Because if, if you're basing it on the Bible, you better base it all the way on the Bible because the only way you're getting to heaven is if you know Jesus. You know, don't, don't just promote people to heaven. I think we're promoting all kinds of people in our society to a better place, and I got a funny feeling they're in the wrong place. They're not in a better place. They're in a worse place because they're in outer darkness. They're in a, a state of separation from God because what we need to understand is that if we don't know Christ, we are separated from no, the knowledge of God. We do not know who God is. And remember earlier I read who God was. He was sitting on a throne and he was described as light. And Jesus said, you know, depart from me, you workers of inequity. I'm gonna cast you into what? Darkness. And darkness is a symbol of, you know, being absence of light. Those are important ideas, folks. We need to grasp this stuff. You can't just be making statements without any sort of ability to substantiate these statements. But let me move on. I want to look at two elements in the story. I'm going to go real quick here, because I spent a lot of time, you know, building the argument how important this really is. But, you know, there's two, I, I believe, uh, credibilities, two elements that give credibility to the resurrection of Jesus. And first of all, it's the response of the eyewitnesses. And we pick up the resurrection story here in Mark's gospel. Mark starts with the response of the women who had ministered to Jesus and his disciples in verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. They were at the cross now. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Josie and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and had cared for his need. Many of the women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. You know, and then in verse 47, it said, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Josie saw where he was laid. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, the same women went to the tomb and found that it was empty. Now, I'm going to just say this. If you're trying to create... If a fabricated story, you're going to try to create it on the best possible premise going. And I want to just declare to you that women, according to Jewish law, were not credible witnesses. Sorry, ladies. There was a bias against, there was a gender bias. And um, Mark, uh, James Edwards, a New Testament scholar, said, now Mark gives the names of these women three different times in these two chapters. The listing of names so unusual for Mark certifies on the basis of eyewitnesses the veracity of the events described. And then he goes on, more remarkable is the reception of the list and even more so that they're the names of women because Jewish opinion of women, especially in religious manners, was not a very positive thing. Later accounts verified the resurrection by male testimony. It also attests to the veracity or the truthfulness of the resurrection narrative. For had early Christians fabricated the resurrection story, the testimony of women in all four Gospels was no way to go about it. That's not how you would do it. That's what he's arguing. So some two centuries after the Gospels were written, the pagan Celsus would still needle Origen, who was a church father, 
on the gossip of women about the empty tomb. In other words, he said, you guys are basing your whole thing on a bunch of women walking around talking about, you know, there was a tomb that was empty, you know. Well, it's based on more than that. So Judaism, as I've already said, did not accept the testimony of women. However, I love this. Unless women were actually present at the tomb, the early church would scarcely have placed them there since Judaism did not accept the testimony of women. The testimony of women, however, is entirely in character with God's economy. Don't you love that? See, God doesn't think the way man does. He elevates people. And he basically says those whose testimony is discounted in human society are the first to be included in God's society. Aren't you glad for that? You know, God does that. He says, I don't really care. I'm gonna show, I'm gonna reveal myself to these ladies. Great. I, I say, God, more power to you. Do it, you know? We get all hung up on stuff. You know, God's not on our frequency at all. Have anybody figured that out yet? He's way beyond us. I love the way they write the story. So then we realize uh, the second person uh, was that was a respondent in the story is a prominent citizen of the community. His name is Joseph. We pick it up here in verse 42. It was preparation day. Now Mark is writing to Romans. He's got to explain to them what that means. They have no idea. So then he puts in a parenthetical thought. That is the day before the Sabbath. Which day is the Sabbath, by the way? Saturday. And what did the Jews do on Saturday? They rest. And so it's against their law and understanding to do work. And so they don't want to be taking bodies down from crosses. So now that they're, so they go to Pilate and they said, hey, listen, we don't want to do this. So why don't you expedite their deaths? And how do you do that is that you break their legs. And why would you do that? Because when you're hanging on a cross, what you're doing is pulling yourself up to breathe. And so eventually when you weaken and you can't pull yourself up anymore, what happens is that you suffocate. And that's how you die. It's a very painful way to die. And so to expedite the process, you break their legs so they can't pull themselves up anymore and they die very quickly. And they said, just break their legs. And then they went to Pilate to do that. And so he sent his soldiers to go do that. He told them, he gave them instructions, go ahead, break their legs. And when they came to Jesus, they found out he was already dead. They didn't have to break his legs, which fulfilled the scriptures that not a bone in his body was broken. But what they did do to make sure he was dead is they took a spear and pierced his heart and blood and water rushed out of his heart. And so they knew he was dead, okay? So much for the swooning theory, okay? I just gotta tell you, the Bible does you know, shatter some of these ideas. Now, how many think it took a little bit of courage to come to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body when you consider that you know, Jesus was now considered, quote unquote, a criminal of Rome, you know? Is there a conspiracy against Rome here? And so James Edwards says, it took courage to request from the governor the body of a man executed as an enemy of Rome, even though Pilate knew he was innocent. Joseph's unexpected advocacy is yet another twist of Markian irony. In other words, this is ironic, he says, that, that, he, that, that a leader of the Jews would actually come and ask for his body because they're the ones that had Pilate kill him, you know? But he says... Um, which tells us that there, not everybody was in agreement on the death of Jesus in the leadership. It's a reminder that not all Jewish authorities opposed Jesus. As a matter of fact, who is this man, Joseph of Arimathea? Well, Matthew tells us that he actually was himself a disciple of Jesus. And John tells us that he was actually a secret disciple of Jesus because he was afraid of the other members of the Sanhedrin. So he didn't tell them that he really was sympathetic to the cause of Christ. And isn't that kind of the way it is for most Christians, you know? You get them on Mondays through Saturdays, and you got this hostile population, and nobody wants to stand up and say, you know, I'm really a follower of Jesus because we just don't want that pressure. You know, you were just kind of following along the lines of Joseph here. But eventually, we have to get off the fence. 
And finally, Joseph realizes, what have I done? I didn't stand up for him, you know. So now, at his death, he's going to try to honor him by burying him. And then we read in John 19.39, it says, he was accompanied by another member of the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Nicodemus. We find his story in John chapter 3. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and about 75 pounds of spices. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Wow. What's going on here? Well, they're, they're getting Jesus ready for burial. And they're doing it very quickly. And so they've got all of this uh, spices. And by the way, these spices are worth a lot of money. So I want to just stop here and just ask the question. If you're doing this for Jesus, bearing him with all of this expense, and you're giving Jesus your own tomb, which was what Joseph was doing because it was a rich man's tomb. Because if you were poor, they just buried you in the ground. But if you were a rich person, they actually buried you on the side of a hill that were cut out in stone. And then they would have two different types of, you know, Openings, And they would have some that the rock that went over the opening to keep the animals from scavenging the dead bodies or to keep grave robbers from going in and taking the burial spices. They would be kind of a square, you know, uh, rock to cover it. But if you were very wealthy, you would actually have a round stone. Because how many know that carving off all that stone to make it round, that actually required labor and it was actually costly. And so we know from that that this was a very, very wealthy person. Now, if you're going through all this trouble to bury Jesus, do you have the anticipation he's going to rise from the dead? I don't think so. So these guys are not thinking Jesus is rising from the dead. As a matter of fact, every disciple in the story has no clue that Jesus is going to come back. Even though we told them, it has not registered. And you go, why didn't it register? Very simple. Do you know you and I, when we're taking in information, we only take in what fits our box. We just saw the box thing here. We already have predispositions, and anything that doesn't filter into what we think fits, we just kick it out. And so when Jesus is talking about dying, they're having a problem with that. Peter even rebuked Jesus. And when he told them about rising again, it just did not filter in their thinking. They're just not there. They're thinking Jesus is coming to establish a physical kingdom on earth. That's where their heads were at. Now he's dead. They're totally shattered. And they're preparing now for his burial. This is also interesting. Pilate would not release the body until Jesus was actually dead. Look at verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear, because when he asked for the body, he goes, is he already dead? And summoning the centurion, he said to him, if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. Now I've got another argument here. Who in the world is Pilate talking to? He's talking to the centurion. Which one? The one that was probably the executor, the centurion that was standing before Jesus, that saw Jesus die. Now, you have to understand something. These people who are killing people like every week on these crosses, they know what a dead person's like. How many know if you're a soldier and you've been fighting for a long time and you're executing people, you actually know when people are dead? How many know that's probably true? And so when he said to him, and remember I already told you, they didn't break his legs, they put a spear in his body, he knew he was dead. So all of the people that argue that Jesus didn't die, it doesn't, the Bible does not support that position. It actually supports the idea that Jesus Christ died. And we see it here written. How many know that God actually knew about the 21st century and all the funny ideas that we would come up with in the 20th and the 21st century? He's got us all covered. The story actually lays it out very clearly for us and explaining to us that Jesus died and was buried. Very important. 
So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took it down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. That's what we know as the rich man's tomb, too. And the Bible foretold that. And so there, Jesus was now in the tomb, and the Bible says Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now let me just move on here real quickly to the second point. Empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, I believe, give credibility to the resurrection story. The women who were coming back after the Sabbath to anoint Jesus' body. You know what some people said? They went to the wrong tomb. Now, I've got to stop here in verse 47. It says they actually took note which tomb it was. So first of all, the Bible is explicit. And it, listen, if you're going to do something to, for someone you love, and this is going to be something you lovingly want to do, you're not going to be goofing off here. These people did not show up at the wrong tomb. But to really bring it clearly into our minds, let's take a look at chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene married the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go in and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, just after sunrise, so it wasn't in the dark. Because some people say, well, they got lost in the dark. Come on, guys. Read the scriptures. It says after sunrise, you know, the sun's out. They're looking. It's light. They've marked where it's supposed to go. I'm just pointing these things out. It's right here, you know. It says they were on their way to the tomb. And what we need to notice is that it was just after sunrise, so they could see their way clearly. They did not get to the wrong tomb. You know what their great concern was? Verse 3. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Why? Because, you know what, these stones were actually leveraged by gravity. You know, they would roll them up, put a, a block of something there, maybe more rock, and then they would bury the body, and then they would remove the rock, and the stone would roll down. And it took a few people to actually move the stone. So these three women are coming to the tomb. They're going, hey, we can't roll that stone. It's a big stone. This is designed to discourage people from breaking in, right? So they're thinking about this, but on their way, they look up at verse 4, and they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Their problem was solved, but it actually created a new problem. What in the world is the stone doing rolled away? Who rolled it away? What's going on here? Now, this is my sanctified imagination. I don't think they just kept moving at the same pace. I think when they saw the stone rolled away, they probably got a little more sense of urgency. They probably moved a little quicker to the tomb to figure out what in the world's going on. The Bible says this in verse 5. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. In the Greek language, that word alarm means fear, wonder, amazement. Guess what? When you see the Bible saying somebody dressed in a white robe, you're usually talking about an angelios. That's Greek for a messenger from God. We call it an angel. And everybody, every time I read in the Bible an angel appears, people freak out. Because, you know what it says? First words that the angels usually say is, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. You know, that's their first words. First reaction, people are afraid. People are alarmed. How many know last night in the middle of a storm if somebody would have showed up in your room like an angel? You probably would have been a little alarmed too. Like, what in the world's going on here, right? That would have got your attention. That would have freaked you out a little bit. So I believe the angel was basically saying, hey, listen, I'm not here to hurt you. You know, we're not here. Don't be anxious. Because they were like, wow, their anxiety levels had moved up a few notches. Don't be alarmed. They're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Who was crucified? He has risen. And, you know, literally, I was reading in the Greek language, he was raised. He's not here. He's, he's, he's alive. And then it says this. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this before. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? Like, pull over there and look. 
And then he says, but go tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. What? When did Jesus tell him he was going to meet him in Galilee? Well, actually, you've got to be really paying attention. But earlier, when Jesus was talking, he said to the disciples before he was crucified, he said, but after I have risen, now he's telling them, I'm going to rise from the dead, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I think that's kind of neat. But you know what? It's not computing. Because people are not thinking of Jesus dying, being raised from the dead, meeting him in Galilee, right? That's not where their brains are at. And so this message gets bypassed in their circuits. Okay? Now, what's fascinating here is that the empty tomb does not prove the resurrection. It doesn't prove it. But the resurrection makes the empty tomb far more meaningful. As James Edwards points out, what brings about faith is an actual encounter with Jesus. What changes these people is not the fact that the body is gone. What brings about a change in them is the fact that Jesus shows up and meets with them. And for 40 days he visits with them. And yet when you're reading in the other Gospels, I mean, Jesus actually shows up in the upper room and goes, Hey guys, how are you doing? They're like, whoa, you know? And one of the stories tells us that Thomas wasn't there. And so these other ten disciples are talking to Jesus, and Jesus disappears. And uh, they're talking amongst themselves, and then Thomas shows up a little later, and they go, you can't believe what happened, Thomas. Well, what happened? Jesus showed up. Right. You're pulling my chain, right? He says, I'm not, I don't buy this. I'm not buying you guys. You know, I will not believe unless I put my fingers right into the wounds of his body. And a week later, guess what happens? Jesus shows up again. Well, hey, hey, hi, Thomas. Do you want to do it? Come on over here. Check it out. And I mean, what is, and John tells us what, Jesus, what Thomas, you know, Jesus says to him. Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, hey, you know what? You, 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 you believe now because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe in who haven't seen. But here's what I'm going to say to all of us. When you and I have an encounter with Jesus, it changes us. It changes our lives. That's when we know Jesus is alive, because we've had this meeting with him. But just to give you an idea how strong doubt is, let me just read something from Matthew's Gospel. It says that then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. He even was so specific, he says, yeah, I'm going to meet you at such and such a mountain. Now, I don't know if it was the Mount of Transfiguration or the Mount we preached a sermon on the Mount, but he says, I'll meet you at this mountain. And Jesus shows up there, and look what happens. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Wow, yay, Jesus! And then it says, but some doubted. Now, I'm just sitting here reading him, like, really? Jesus is there, there's some are worshipping, and some are going, I don't buy this. They're struggling. And you know why? Because we have certain leanings. Some people, you know, we just struggle more with doubt than other people do. Right? Some people are more easily, you know, convinced, and other people have a harder time buying it. But these were believers. They actually, you know, Jesus then sent them out and commissioned them. Let me close with the story. In the 19th century, Charles Bradlaugh, a prominent atheist, challenged a Christian man regarding the validity. He wanted to have a debate with him regarding the claims of Christianity, particularly the resurrection. The Christian guy was named Hugh Price Hughes, that was his name. And he was actually working with the poor in the, in the slums of London. He said, okay, listen, I'll, I'll meet with you on this debate on one condition. He said, I propose to you that we each bring some evi concrete evidence of the validity of the belief of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been transformed by our teaching. I'll bring hundreds of people. We do the same. 
He goes, no, you don't even need to bring a hundred. Just bring twenty. No, nope. as a matter of fact, you can just bring one person that's been changed by your message. We'll have a debate. You know what happened? Brad Long withdrew. He couldn't bring one person who his skeptical, mocking teaching had actually brought about a transformation in their lives. But I'm going to say something. For 20 centuries, people's lives have been changed by the life of Jesus. You know, I'll tell you one more story. I love this story. Years ago, Paul Pellick, he was a theologian, very liberal. He went to an African-American college and he was disputing the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. He whacked elephant for over half an hour, trying to disprove it, right? This is in a major university and there was a bunch of pastors that were there. And, um, who's going to debate this brilliant mind, right? And so he finished, he goes, is there any questions? There was no black creature at the back. He was eating an apple. Brought his lunch. He said, Scott, I've got a question for you. He said, this apple, is it bitter or is it sweet? Telex says, I have no idea. I haven't eaten of the apple. He said, brother, you have not tasted my Jesus. You see, when you experience the reality of Jesus' transforming life, that ends the argument. Amen? That's the tonight. Well, maybe you're here tonight, and I tried to make a final appeal from the Gospel of Mark. And what am I basically saying is simply this. We have the most amazing message. It's either true or it's not true. If it's true, it's lifting me. If it's not true, it's a hope. I try to present to you that it's the truth. And many of us in this room, we've experienced it. We've experienced the transformation that Jesus makes in our lives. Maybe you're here tonight and say, you know what, I, I know of Jesus intellectually, but I've never encountered him personally. You know there's a big difference between information and experience. It's the difference between talking about Jesus and tasting. You know, experiencing. I love that scripture in Hebrew that tastes and see that the Lord is good. You've got to experience it. Maybe you're here tonight and say, I've never, you know, I, I believe in it, I've intellectually understood it, but I've never experienced it. Tonight, I want to experience Jesus. That's my prayer. With every head bowed, every eye closed. Is that you tonight? Just raise your hands. You know what? That's me. I want to experience Jesus. I won't make you join the church. I'm just going to pray for you that you, God, will answer the prayer. You will experience Jesus. God bless you. Anyone else? Just raise your hands. I want to experience Jesus. If you're real, I want to experience Jesus. Yeah, God bless you. Many of you are raising your hands. That's great. Awesome. Here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to say, listen. Pray and say, Lord, I want to experience your life. God is going to honor that sincere prayer. He's going to reveal himself to you. Okay? He's going to make himself real to you. He's going to answer that. Believe me, God will do that. He's very gracious. How many here can say, you know, Pastor, I am a Christian, but there's been so many challenges, trials, temptations, and difficulties in my life. And I have lost the sense of this amazing message of the resurrection of Jesus. This good news that actually will transform the lives of people for all of eternity. And you know what? I've not been sharing this message. I've been caught up with this world. And you know what? There's people I know that I like and that I love and they're perishing around me. You know, if they die tomorrow, I don't know when they're going to be. You can't just 
just save the people, well, they're in a better place. You and I can only say that if we know they know Jesus. And then we can say, well, you know, they're with their Lord. They follow us. We've got the euphemism for death. And only a Christian can say, I've fallen asleep. You see, for the Christian, death is like falling asleep because we're going to be alive in God's presence forever and ever. What a beautiful thought. How many here today say, you know what, Lord, would you help me? Would you help me to be more concerned about the people around me? Would you help me, Lord, to share the beautiful, life-transforming message with family and friends and neighbors and people around me? Lord, give me the grace, the wisdom, the understanding of that. You know, kindness and compassion to begin to share my dynamic faith with them. How many here said, would you, would you tell me, Pastor, that I would be more effective? That I would have a greater influence in my life? I've got my hand up. I want to have a greater influence. You know, I think to myself, but I only have so many more years to live. You know, that's true. I've even thought recently, I've only got so many more years to preach. I don't know how many, but I only have so many more. And I'm just saying, Lord, have every opportunity to be more effective Congregation be more alive than you. Maybe we have greater impact in the city. 